How much do you know about pregnancy and alcohol? The reality may surprise you. Alcohol exposure while in the womb may cause fetal alcohol spectrum disorder in unborn children. It may lead to lifelong physical and or neurodevelopmental impairments such as problems with memory, attention, cause and effect reasoning, and difficulties in adapting to situations. For such an impactful disorder, it is rarely spoken about in the popular media. This podcast will take you behind the scenes to chat with the people who understand FASD. This is Pregnancy and Alcohol, The Surprising Reality. Welcome, welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to this episode of Pregnancy and Alcohol, The Surprising Reality. My name is Kurt Lewis, your friendly neighbourhood podcaster. Today, I'm chatting with a research fellow at the University of Sydney and a manager of the Fetal Alcohol Spectrum Disorder Australian Registry, FASDA for short, Dr. Melissa Chung. Melissa, how's it going? Good. Very good. You're based in Sydney, so I'm guessing it's raining, I'm guessing. It's probably the weather yeah, for Yeah, it. it's quite gloomy weather. They said that it'll be raining throughout uh, the next few days. <laughs> Lots of water in the dams. That's always the good part of it. I, the bad side of living in a place where it doesn't rain is it's always dry <laughs> everywhere. Grass yeah, is- exactly. Mm. <laughs> the gardens don't look so good that way. So, Melissa, it sounds like you have a very busy role in the Australian Paediatric Survey Unit at the University of Sydney. However, before we hear more about that, I'm wondering what you do to relax after a busy day at work. Do you like to read, watch TV, something a bit more active? Oh, I'm an avid reader of mystery fiction. So I I really like suspense, mystery, that sort of thing. So currently I'm working my way through the Agatha Christie um, set of novels. Oh, I love those. I've read those ones. They're so good. Which which one are you reading now? If you don't mind me asking. At the moment, and oh, it's probably like her, her most well-known one, which is And Then There Were None. Oh, that was a good one. I yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I only found out about that one recently. So mm. then working my way through that very quickly, mm. <laughs> binging. Yeah, my favourite's got to be that Hercule Poirot ones. There, there's some really good ones. I can't stand Miss Marple for some reason, though. Yeah, oh, to be honest, I, I think I have a similar sort of sentiment. <laughs> mm. Mm. Well, getting down to the nuts and bolts, what is the FASD Australian Registry, FASDA? Can you explain it to our listeners? What is the overall goal of having the register? Yeah, so a registry is essentially a collection of information about individuals with a specific diagnosis or condition. For the FASDA, we're looking at children in Australia under the age of 15 years with FASD. We all know that FASD remains poorly understood and poorly recognised. There is limited population level information about FASD in Australia. The overall goal of the registry is to fill this information gap by collecting detailed data about what FASD looks like in Australia. These data will help inform the improvement of the diagnosis, management and prevention of FASD in Australian children. So how does that benefit children with FASD who are registered with FASDA? So apart from collecting data, the registry also acts as a mechanism of contact with families living with FASD and their children, of course. And so this way, organisations, wherever they are, can contact and invite families to participate in new FASD research studies and also provide families with information about new services, peer support, effective treatments, resources when these become available. So what kind of like resources we talk? It depends. So we might create some resources ourselves. So this might be information about new treatments or information about tip sheets on how to manage FASD, that sort of stuff. But of course, it also depends on what other organizations want to create and they can use us 
as a portal for distributing this information. And also the terms of studies, if you, there needs to be a FASD study, and that, that study would go on to kind of gather more information as well. Yeah. So then with studies, there can be clinical trials, for example, and that they can come through our registry and invite these families to see if they would be interested to take part. And that's like purely voluntary. Of course. Yes. And it's purely voluntary to be registered on this registry as well. Mm. Mm. So why is it so important to have a registry for children with FASD? I know you mentioned data before. What kind of data are you collecting? So, as we had mentioned before, we know relatively little about FASD in Australia, so any data is valuable and insightful. So having a centralised registry for FASD, we're able to monitor FASD epidemiology, so that's looking at its frequency, its distribution, patterns and trends. So we collect data about uh, where these children are in Australia, what services they access, what clinical features they have, and also any other comorbidities or other conditions they might have together with FASD. I imagine this is like very important because I might be wrong, but there's never been a prevalence study done in Australia in terms of FASD. That is correct. That is correct. So this is as close as we can get to a prevalence study. It's not a full-blown prevalence study where we're going out in the community and start, like asking every single person. But in this case, we can capture as much as we can. Mm, and come up with a kind of rough estimate of what... Yeah, it would be the minimum, in a sense. It'd be the minimum sort of estimated prevalence in Australia. It will be more but not less than that particular number. Is there any chance you'd be able to share, like, what kind of data you've come across? Has there any been anything interesting? Uh, at the moment, we haven't published anything, but we will be. Oh, awesome. uh, So, yeah, so then uh, do keep an eye out for this space. So, of course, when we do publish any data, we'll prepare lay summaries um, that can be distributed, not only to our participants in the registry, but also through our other avenues. So, for example, no FASD, mm, <laughs> it can course. go through there. Uh, yeah, FASD Hub, etc. Yeah, so then just a small sort of like overview of what we're currently receiving. So, we're receiving uh, notifications of studies throughout Australia. We're still trying to recruit more people in the identified section, identified like with names and numbers where we can contact them in the future, I think. But with the actual data data, it was showing that the average child is diagnosed around eight years old, so around primary school age. And there's an overrepresentation of those who are male, those who identify as Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander, those in child protection. And also currently we do see an overrepresentation of those in remote areas in Australia as well. I did read a study recently, not probably not recently, maybe last year in terms of like people who are in the care of the state are more likely to be diagnosed with FASD because um, I forget what the reason was. I'm, I'm sorry if this is coming to a dead end right there, but I... No, I, no, not at all, because it's not only in Australia that this data is present, like showing that more children who are in contact with child protection and justice Mm. tend to have higher prevalence of FASD. Mm. So it's also internationally as well. There has been some research looking at high-risk groups for FASD, and that's one of the groups that has been identified. I've always said, yeah, I find it interesting that it's a higher rate of males. Just slightly higher for Australia at the moment. This, this type of national data will provide an evidence base for national policies, service delivery, and future research. 
And since it's a registry over time, the registry can also enable studies of FASD longitudinally. So that means across longer time period. So not just at one single point in time, so we can follow up in the future. And if our families consent to participating in follow-up, then that way we can look at the more long-term outcomes of FASD. I'm wondering who is providing the information to FASD? I'm wondering... Specifically, if parents and carers can register children with FASDA directly rather than relying on health professionals their children are seeing to provide information about FASDA? So can they register with you directly, FASDA? Of course they can, yes. So parents, carers and guardians can enroll their children directly with me (laughs) as the registry manager. So they can return the opt-in consent form. So it's a written form. So sign that, return it to me and registered. But then, like you mentioned, they can also ask their child's health professional to do so as well on their behalf. But of course, the form needs to be signed by the parent, carer or guardian themselves. What would you say to the people who express concerns about their children's privacy? How will the information be used and shared in future years? So health professionals only provide de-identified information about FASD diagnoses to the registry. That means there's no way of knowing or identifying who is who from this data. It is these data that will be used to inform national policy, service delivery and research. If a family provides written consent to participate in the registry, this is when we collect identifiable information, that is names and contact details. So this set of information is kept confidential and can only be accessed by the registry manager, me, to safeguard privacy. So say an organisation wants to invite families to take part in a new research study or wishes to share FASD-related information or resources with families. So I'll be the person contacting the families, not the organisations. So I'm the middle person. So I'll be acting on the organisation's behalf. I get a request and say like, oh, uh, I'll let you know of this opportunity that's come up. It's completely up to the family to get in touch with the organisation if they want to take part in a particular study or if they want to know more details from the organisation themselves. The family's names, contact details, a child's name will never be released to anybody. Well, I'm sure that would allay a lot of people's concerns about in terms of privacy. Now for my, my big question. It's one I ask everyone. Do you think there's more our listeners could be doing as individuals or we could be doing as a whole society to support people with FASD and their families? So FASD is not only a challenging disability for those living with it, but also for their families. It's described as demanding, tough, stressful, and sometimes very isolating. They're good days, bad days. So FASD is also considered as an invisible disability. So the lack of recognition and understanding about FASD in the society can only add to the challenges that these children and families face. So together, I think we need to dispel the myths misconceptions and stigma around FASD. I don't have a exact plan or answer to how we can solve that in one step. I'm sure it's efforts from a lot of different people and organizations and a lot of time would we need to put into that. So I also note that FASD is largely preventable. So preventing FASD is also not solely a woman's responsibility either. So it's up to us to raise awareness about the risks of prenatal alcohol exposure and the risk of drinking while unknowingly uh, for being pregnant already and to support, say, like our friends, our family, community members to say stay alcohol-free if they are or could be pregnant. Or planning to get pregnant. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Has it affected your view on alcohol, being so aware of FASD as you are? I think so. I think so because... 
prior to having contact with FASD, then I knew about the harms of alcohol, but more focused on the liver, Mm. (laughs) about for the individual who was actually drinking the alcohol themselves. But then it really did open my eyes up to that the harm is not only for the drinker and can also harm other people, but I guess that's also not only to the the new uh, unborn baby, Mm. but also those around that individual who's drinking as well. And sometimes the stigma is is actually really uh, harmful too because then people need to reach out for help, for example. But if the society has a certain view about alcohol and is very discriminating, then it's also a barrier to them uh, seeking help and seeking support. It, it's hard. I mean, how do you answer yeah. a problem like stigma, something like very societal, exactly. ingrained? How do, you, how do you respond to that? Like... My kind of response is really is more knowledge. Like we, we get out there, we inform people, we let them know about about what's going on, what um, the views yeah, of uh, promotion, or health promotion, awareness, mm. campaigns, getting people on board, reaching as many people as we can. Well, that's, Not that's an easy job, but mm. yeah, of course, it's definitely valuable to mm. do. Well, essentially, you're doing it from kind of a different end of the yeah. the, the coin, if you know. <laughs> you're doing it from you're trying to get people on board so you can inf- um, create knowledge, which in, in turn creates awareness, and essentially. Yes, yes. Because that in Australia, it's kind of disappointing in a way because America has, a, has done a prevalence study. They know roundabout numbers as well as ca- Canada, as well as England. Why do you think we're so behind on this in terms of Australia? Well, it took a bit of time for us to actually get the term FASD mm. to start with because in Australia originally there were no or no health professionals diagnosing like they didn't know how to diagnose mm. FASD so in a way a lot of people actually didn't know like even health professionals didn't know what FASD was mm. <laughs> yes and so uh, it was only after uh, the research arrived from overseas <laughs> mm. that we knew more about FASD and that way uh, we developed our own guidelines which was first only released five years ago in 2016. Mm. So it's not that much history in Australia, but it's definitely building and the momentum's definitely increasing. Well, I think it's definitely insane that it's only 2016. I mean, yeah, that's only like, what, four, five years ago? Yeah, Yeah, five years ago. That's that's insane in certain ways because... Yeah, only then, like there was an Australian diagnostic guidelines for for FASD Mm. and... Uh, and then there were lots of efforts around promoting the guidelines and uh, making health professionals firstly aware of FASD. Mm. And then also the, the other thing is possibly this is ongoing, but sort of societal awareness of FASD and recognition of FASD as a, as a disability, that's still ongoing. Constant development. And I always love when new research, new studies come out from Australia because it shows that yeah. we're slowly building up that knowledge and it. Exactly. Um, knowledge and that awareness as well. And mm-hmm. I'd like to thank you for coming on the the podcast and helping us spread some of that awareness. And thank you for inviting me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Pregnancy and Alcohol, The Surprising Reality. Please tune in next week for another episode of Our Little Podcast. If you like this podcast episode, then please show your support by leaving a rating and review on iTunes. Every little bit helps. All rights reserved. For more information about FASD, then please go to www.nofasd.org.au.
www.ai.com.au.